fun. I feel like you guys are more interactive than normal, and I love it. That's one of the things I don't like about outdoor service, because you're far away from me, but it's fun. Um, so we've been doing this series on home. I told Kami, I'm like, I'm not sure the sermons I've preached are the best sermons I've ever preached, but I like the conversation that is happening, which is way more important, I think, actually. Uh, I've had conversations with many of you about home. Some of you have been sending me your definitions of home or stories of home or songs of home. I love it. Most of you waited till Friday this week, though. It's too late for me. I need it before Friday. So maybe you'll see your stuff in a future sermon. This morning, I'm not going to read any thoughts, but just remind you that we've been talking about how there's a better home. And we know it and we long for it. We look around us and we think, does it have to be this way? And we know deep down, it doesn't have to be the way it is. That God is at work inviting us to our truest home. And last week we talked about even cultivating this longing. I, I, I'm not even exactly sure how we do it. I just know as I read through the scriptures, we want to cultivate this desire to be home. Because Jesus is preparing a place for us. He's preparing a home. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at Luke 15. It's often known as the parable of the prodigal son. And so whenever I preach a parable, I like to remind us about what parables are and what they aren't. Parables are disorienting stories. Jesus tells these stories. They're designed to, to disorient us and throw us off balance. And as we get thrown off balance, it then, Jesus then coaxes us or invites us into this strange world of God's curious grace. The parables are functioning in a very clear way with Jesus. They throw us off balance and then they invite us to our truest home. They invite us into this curious world of grace. It's a world we're not accustomed to because we're accustomed to a world of rigid law. And we're accustomed to a world of cause and effect and we're accustomed to a world of just recompense where everybody gets exactly what they deserve. And we begin to think that that's how the world always has been and always has to be. It has to be run this way. And then Jesus enters into our world and he tells us these stories and he throws us off balance. He disorients us. He invites us home into this world of curious grace. As a teacher, I've thought a lot because I was trained to try to be as clear as possible when I preach. But then I read Jesus, and Jesus seemed to have no problem telling stories that prevent people from getting the truth too quickly. <laughs> I mean, Jesus had no problem if you listened to him teach and you walked away and you had no idea what he just said. He just tells these stories because I think it is true that some people never learn anything because they understand everything too quickly and too soon. If you hear something and immediately think you understand it and you file it away as if you know it, there's no transformative power in that. And Jesus wants to change you. He wants to invite you into new life. I heard one pastor say that truth needs to seep into the soul like a gentle rain. I like that picture. Truth needs to seep into your soul like a gentle rain, and it takes time. So Jesus told these creative stories that force us to wonder, what did Jesus really mean? He didn't make it crystal clear. You could even say that Jesus designed his parables to bother us. So if you're bothered this morning, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. 
But what I want you to know, and I think you'll hear this by the end, that parables, when properly heard, are a gateway into God's new world. Or in our series, we've been saying an invitation to come home. So let's read, if you want to turn with me, just listen. It's a story. Luke 15, it's well known. If you've, if you've heard it before, try to hear it afresh. And if you've, never, if you've never heard, this is a great first Sunday at church. This is one of the best stories Jesus told. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me, I mean, just imagine the audacity. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, you got to feel this. His father, who was obviously watching and waiting, saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son begins in his speech, his planned speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can finish, the father says to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they celebrated. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come. Your, your father's killed the fattened calf. He's received him back safe and sound. And the elder son was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out to him as well, and he entreated him. He pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never, I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother, talk about that, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, the word of the Lord. Now this is often known as the parable of the prodigal son, and for good reason, but you know there's more than just the prodigal son. So I want you to kind of forget the usual way of, of thinking of this. I want you to just think about this as a, as a story about a family about a dad and his kids, and about how everybody's relationship matters. Each son to their father, the father to their son, and the, and the brothers to each other. And in some ways, a normal family, you know, I, I probably listened to, just because I could, so, there's so much literature on this parable, and so many, I mean, I'm not even going to touch all you could say about this parable. We're just looking at it through the lens of home this morning. But one pastor I was listening to was talking about how this is like a normal family. 
If you read books on family dynamics, the, the younger child and the oldest child fit perfectly, right? The younger child in this story loves attention. He wants to be the bride in every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He's good at getting what he wants. He's a free spirit. He's a party waiting to happen. He's spoiled, immature, and impulsive. I'm the youngest son, so that's a little too close to home, but <laughs> maybe true. But the older one is just like what you would imagine, right? He follows the rules. He colors inside the lines. He makes his bed. But he's real bossy, and he's always telling his brother what to do. You could imagine that people admire him from a distance, but they don't always enjoy being around this guy because he's judgmental and he's proud and he's lost. And it's interesting, he's lost not in spite of his goodness, but, but he's lost because of it. <laughs> Father, I never disobeyed you. So in some ways it's like a normal family, but it's also crazy dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional family. And I think the core of the dysfunction is the son's inability to understand, to live into, to recognize, and to receive the love the father has for his boys. And we could talk more about this, but as you get into the story, you, you, you can see pretty clearly that both sons really want to use their father as a means to an end. They're not living for a relationship of love with their father. They're thinking about all they can get because of their father. And there's all kinds of parallels. Of course, Jesus is always telling these stories to help us think differently about who God is, who our father is, who Jesus is as he reveals the father to us. But these boys are trying to manipulate and control their father. They just don't understand his love. They don't understand all that comes. And so let's talk a little bit about each of these boys, a little bit more. The younger son wants independence. That's pretty clear. He wants his inheritance. He wants to get away from his house, his home, his family. He wants to live his own life. You get a sense that he feels his commitments to home and family are unbearable restrictions. He wants to throw off. So he takes himself as far from home as he can get in search of a life for himself. There's a lot we could say, but there's two things I'll point out. The spirit of the younger son is one of impatience, isn't it? He can't wait for his father to die. I mean, it sounds funny to say that, but that's how the story goes. The younger son wants what he thinks to be the good things of life, and he wants it now. You could say he wants to take the waiting out of the wanting. It's a spirit of impatience. But very much tied to that is a spirit of independence. He has a deep drive for independence, to throw off his commitments and ties, to find a life of his own. And it's even interesting as you read the story, it doesn't seem like he thinks in demanding his inheritance that he's asking for a favor. It, I mean, I don't know, it doesn't seem like he's asking for a favor. It seems to me that he believes he has a right to this inheritance, and he has a right to do whatever he wants. <laughs> and so he doesn't care. He's like, Dad, you're dead to me. Just give me my inheritance now. There's a persona, a spirit of, I'll decide what is right or wrong for me, and I'll live as I want to live. And through self-discovery, I will find my true, my true self and my true home. Well, in the parable, there's a famine. And in the famine, he starts to realize not just what he wants, but what he actually needs. 
And he's feeding these pigs and envying their food and realizing he doesn't even have his daily bread. And he has this moment. The text says he came to himself. He, he kind of sees where his impatience and his, and his independence has got. He sees the fruit of his choices. And he comes to his senses. And he realizes who he really is. And for the first time in a long time, he remembers where he came from and where he really belongs. He remembers his true home. <laughs> and I was reading, like I said, I read a lot. And, and there was one, I mean, this is from a sermon a few years ago. But, but I was reading this and personally, and then as a pastor who's still trying to shepherd the flock and steer the ship through raging waters. <laughs> I, I found this helpful. So let me read this is a couple paragraphs. And I, I want to, as it relates to home, but as it relates to the younger, bro, younger son, and see if this, I'll, I'll kind of try to help you see why, why this is important to me as we get to the end, but you might already see it coming. Probably when he left home, the younger son had some idea of finding himself. At last, he could be his own person, make his own choices, be whoever he wanted to be. But that route to finding himself ended in the pigsties. Human beings have a deep need for freedom, but they also have a deep need for belonging. The prodigal had thought of freedom as the kind of independence which is incompatible with belonging. He thought to be free, he had to break of the ties that bound him to home and family. And on a broader level, our society has done the same. It has defined freedom in a way that contradicts belonging. There are a lot of very lonely people who have secured their independence of others because they are terrified of being defined or tied down by other people. There is a kind of freedom that contradicts belonging, and yes, also a kind of belonging that contradicts freedom, but those are not the kinds of freedom and belonging the Bible commends to us. True freedom, Jesus' freedom, is found only together with belonging and vice versa. The prodigal comes to himself, his true self, that he'd been escaping from ever since he left home, when he remembers his home, when he remembers his father, and he realizes that's where he truly belongs. Someone has said that home is where someone is waiting for you, where someone is watching for you. To his astonishment, the prodigal son found that his father had indeed been waiting for him. And in his father's loving embrace, he learns what he had never properly known before, that he and his father belong together. He has not lost his freedom. Rather, he truly finds it as he takes up again his position in the household as his father's son. You and I are most free where we are at home. And it is with those who love us, with a Jesus kind of love, where we experience what it means to be home and belong. For people to find God is like the prodigal to come to themselves to find for the first time that their true self is not to be found in pursuit of total independence, but in remembering where they truly belong and to whom they truly belong. In the homelessness of our society, it's an experience of coming home. Too many people, sadly, have never known anything worth calling a home where someone is waiting for them. But God is. God is waiting for you. Like the father in the parable, he runs to meet you, embrace you, plead with you, and give you the freedom of his home. 
And I was reading that this week and pondering it and thinking about it because I know, I know there are tensions that many of us feel, even when it comes to church, about freedom and belonging. And I don't know that I'm going to lean into and try to, try to explain it all. I, I think this is where I want to let the parable be the parable. And I want you to wrestle with it. I don't want you to instantly think that you've already got this figured out. This week, you are going to feel, because you're an American, you are going to feel impulses to independence and freedom. And that's okay, but I want you to sit with Jesus on that. Ask Jesus, is this of you or is this of something else? I mean, it's, it's a great, ask Jesus. Run to the Father. This week, you are going to feel, do I belong? This person said something, or this person did something, or happened at church, or happened in my family. Or ha- you're going to wrestle with belonging, and you're going to, I mean, you're going to wrestle, just sit with Jesus. Here's what I will tell you. I will promise you that the freedom you long for, the deepest freedom that, you, that your soul needs and desires, you will find it in Jesus. So wrestle with him. And the belonging you long for that I hope, I hope we can experience that kind of freedom and belonging at the church. We're the outpost of the kingdom. But if you find it in Jesus, you're going to be tempted to look in other places and just wrestle. You don't have to compromise freedom for belonging. And you don't have to compromise belonging for freedom. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like in your situation, but I promise you in Jesus, it comes together. Find another way. Wrestle with the parable. Let the truth slowly seep into your soul like a gentle rain. I like that picture. But I do think it's going to start by coming home. And what I want to say is don't be afraid to come home. When the prodigal returned home and fell into the arms of his father, I'm sure the boy was afraid. You can tell a little bit by his immediately speaking of his unworthiness. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This wayward son has fallen into the hands of his father, and he's put his fate in his father's hands, and he's a little afraid. He doesn't know how the father's going to respond. <laughs> but I'm telling you, there is no better place to be. This gracious father in Jesus' parable is given to us as a picture of our heavenly father. When the prodigal son fell fearfully into the hands of his father, forgiveness and healing and restoration began. Just because the prodigal son felt fear as he fell into his father's hands doesn't mean he had anything to fear from his father. In his father's hands, he was home. He was in the only safe place to be. Ironically, it was in the far country that the prodigal son was in danger. Never as he was running home to the embrace of his father. God wants to embrace you. He wants to welcome you home just as you are. But then I love this story. Because God's embracing of you is not an endorsement of how you've been behaving, right? That's what we say. We used to, I used to say this more often. We say, come as you are, but don't stay there. You're welcome just as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to God. You don't have to clean yourself up to come home. But notice, the, the, the son prepares the speech. Before he can even finish, the father's transforming him. Don't stay where you are. I'm putting a new robe on you. I'm putting new shoes on your feet. I'm putting a ring on your finger. I'm not going to let you stay as you are. In Scripture, we find a message that diagnoses our human condition correctly and offers a remedy that both affirms our value without ever minimizing our evil. And good luck finding that in any other worldview, by the way. 
I don't think you'll find that. I mean, you're, you're going to have to compromise value or evil. But somehow in Jesus, in the Bible, your value is affirmed without ever minimizing your evil. In the Bible, in the story of Jesus, we see a loving father who embraces us exactly as we are. And at the same time, you could say a holy father who transforms us into exactly what he created us to be. That's good news. That is life-giving good news. Let's talk a little bit about the older brother here. The elder brother, we could say he has a spirit that is joyless. It's kind of like a mechanical obedience. I've been slaving for you, Dad. You almost get a sense that he sees his father as an employer more than a father. Someone for whom he worked hard, and therefore he now expects the appropriate wages. The spirit of the other br elder brother is judgmental and unforgiving, and it manifests itself, and we're going to talk about this, in bitter anger. He rejects the father because he's never disobeyed him. He's proud of his goodness. In his mind, I'll be good and I'll work hard and through moral conformity, I'll find my true self and my true home. He's mad. He's mad at mercy. He's mad at the mercy and compassion of the father. He believes the father owes him. He's living a good life and he deserves a good life. This is why when you walk with Jesus, probably at the beginning of your journey, you just begin confessing all the bad things that you did. And there's plenty. There's plenty of bad things that we've done. But as you stay on this path of following Jesus, you also begin to learn that you have to confess the good things that you've done too because your motivations are a wreck. A lot of the good things that you and I do are efforts to control and manipulate God. I've done this for you, so you've got to do this for me. It's just not how it works. The elder brother is as lost as the younger brother. They're, they're, both, they're lost in different countries, but they're, lo, they're both lost. And I hope you see the father goes out to both of them. Now, let me say a word about this root of bitterness. I've been thinking a lot about bitterness in the last 18 months. The problem with bitterness is that it keeps you identified with your loss. Pain and sorrow and grief are really ultimately all about the, some form of loss. You could say some form of death. We've lost something in our life and it's gone and there's pain. And if we become bitter through blame, we, we are making that loss our identity. And if you think about it, if you have the eyes to see it, it's a negative identity. And you begin to go through life saying, I'm the one who was hurt. I'm the one who was abused. I'm the one who was cheated. And you start living into that and you get stuck there. Don't do it. <laughs> Developing that bitter spirit takes you off the road to recovery. And, and it unfortunately becomes the end of your story. It becomes your story for the rest of your life. You start living into that. It becomes your identity. One of loss. Rather than, I hope you see, if you're, if you're paying attention to the parable, the father wants the story of his, of his boys to be one of abundance, one of generosity, one of celebration, one of joy, a party. Don't let bitterness become a negative identity. Don't let it become the end of your story. I mean, that's very much how Jesus ends the parable, too. We don't know what the elder son chooses. It's kind of like, what are you going to choose? I mean, in the context, he's talking to the Pharisees, but he's talking to us. What are you going to choose? Are you going to come home to the Father? Are you going to stay outside of the party? 
Or if we put it in other language that we can all relate to in the last 18 months, are you going to build walls? As a pastor, I worry about our souls. I really have begun to think about, as, as a pastor, I'm shepherding souls. I'm tending for souls. This who we are, this hybrid of the, the dust of earth and the breath of God. And, and I want to care for souls. But I also want to care for our church family and that we would find ways to live in peace even when we don't agree on everything. And in these contentious times when we seem obsessed with division and wall building, it's worth remembering that Jesus desires to engage everyone, the younger son and the older son, both those who are drawing near to him and those who are running away. Jesus came to remove walls, not to build them. So again, this week, if you find yourself starting to build bricks between you and someone else who's made in the image of God, pause and just ask Jesus, is that what I should be doing? I want to remind you, I was thinking about this. We are gathered outside here on a Sunday morning. I promise you this. If anyone knows this, it's me. We are not gathered because we all agree on the right response as to how we should handle this pandemic. I guarantee you that. People five down from you do not agree with you on how we should respond to this pandemic. You are not here because you agree with people on the pandemic. You are here because you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And the person five seats down from you is here because they confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And that is why we gather. Now, we learn out of love. In the myth, you can clap if you want. It's good. Good news, right? It's true, though. I'm glad you're clapping and not mad at me about that, but it's true. You and I confess Jesus, and we confess and believe in the forgiveness of sins. So is somebody on this property going to infuriate you in the next month? Yes. It might even be me. But we'll practice confessing sins together and we'll keep gathering because we believe Jesus is Lord. And, and somewhere in the midst of this tension of freedom and belonging, we'll figure it out together because that's what we're called to do, to be the church, to be a... It is a countercultural thing. It is a radical Jesus. You could say a revolutionary thing that you are gathered with people you disagree with about the pandemic because you both love Jesus. Where else is that happening in the world? <laughs> You're being revolutionary this morning. I hope you see that. You're being citizens of another kingdom. So beware of bitterness and beware of building walls. For the elder brother, his coming to himself, his coming to his senses, must be not only realizing that he belongs to his father, but also that he belongs to his brother. What does the father say? The elder brother says, it's your son. The father says, it's not only my son who was given up for dead and has returned. It's your brother. It's your brother who was dead and is alive. It's your brother who was lost and has been found. Shouldn't you be rejoicing too? God's love creates a family of those who belong to him. And because they belong to him, they belong to each other. You and I have to figure out what that means. We belong to God, but we belong to each other. And again, that's a different form of homecoming, but I promise you, if we can figure that out, even if it comes with some repentance and forgiveness, we'll find our way home. 
Well, just to wrap this up, these two brothers are both lost in different countries, but there's only one way home, and it's through Jesus, it's through grace, it's through the initiation of the Father. These two boys don't really understand the love of their father, and they're not really operating out of the assurance of that love either. I mean, you you never threw me a party. (laughs) But I tell you, this father loved his boys. If we were to time travel, if this was a real story, the people in the village would have never seen a parent who loved like this. If you knew anything about the first century, what this father does is so radically countercultural for his day. He was wise, he was patient, he was firm, he was gentle, he was honest, and he was devoted to his boys. And they broke his heart. And they broke his heart in very different ways. And in the parable, the father is enduring one of the worst things a human being can endure, rejected love. When you and I get treated like this, when our love is rejected, we get mad, we retaliate, we reject. I know this personally. I do everything I can possibly do to diminish my affection for someone who's rejected my love so I can avoid the pain, so that I can avoid the hurt. But I get a different picture of humanity from this father. This father maintains his love for his children, and he chooses to endure the agony of rejected love. Throughout the whole story, the father remains gentle and gracious and patient. This father runs when it would have been undignified to run. This father pleads and entreats when it would have been expected for him to command and expel. He reflects reflects the father God who constantly surprises us with his patience and his compassion and his gentle, non-coercive love. This father runs and pleads because he can't stop thinking about his broken boys. This father runs and pleads because he never stopped loving his boys. He never, these boys never stopped needing their father. And Jesus Christ is the God who is running to his rebellious children. Jesus says to us that our brokenness will not get the last word. And he comes to us again and again and again. Jesus enacts the patient long-suffering of the father, the waiting father. He surprises us. It's not what we expect. It's not what we're accustomed to. It's this strange world of grace, but it comes with invitation. Come home. Maybe you've been in the far country. Well, come home. Maybe you've been selfish. Maybe you've cheated or stolen or taken advantage. Come home. You don't have to come home. You can choose to stay away. You don't have to come into the party. You can choose to stay outside and allow anger and bitterness to define you and to build walls. It'll keep you busy, but you won't know freedom and belonging. Jesus invites you home. Let him, this week, wrestle with this. Let him disorient you and throw you off balance and then follow his lead into this curious world of grace, your truest home Come home. The Father initiates. Come home. Let Jesus be your Savior. Let Jesus take your shame. Nobody earns their way home. We just come home. We run home. We recognize our need. We didn't see it before. We see it today. We come home. Our hunger for home is not a hunger this world can fill. It's a hunger for 
It's a hunger for the person you and I are supposed to be what we're not. It's a hunger to be forgiven. It's a hunger to be loved. It's a hunger to be accepted. It's a hunger to belong. It's a hunger to have our brokenness put back together. It's a hunger for Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to receive communion. But I'm going to pray. I want everybody to bow your heads, if you will. I think this prayer is a fair for all of us today. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time you ever pray this. And if it is, I'd love to talk with you about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. But even if you're in the kingdom, pray this prayer. I'm going to pray this prayer. Father God, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm tired. I'm tired of carrying around my shame. I'm tired of pretending it's okay. I'm tired of self-discovery. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm tired of being bitter and angry and jealous. I'm tired of building, building walls. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of guilt. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being anxious. Jesus, help me to see your love. Forgive me of my sin. Wash away my sin and heal my brokenness. Make me your son or your daughter, or confirm or affirm that this is true and help me remember what it means to be your child. Help us to remember that if we want to know what the Father's love looks like, we stare into the face of Jesus. We look at the cross and we're home. Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't gotten communion, now's the time to make your sprint. I'll say a few things, but here's what I want to say. In spite of all of our differences, we share a common loaf and a common cup. And one of the beauties of communion is that we partake, we fellowship in the body and blood of Christ. We dine together as a family. As I said, this is a countercultural response in the times that we live in. You are with people who don't agree with you on many things, but you are with people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And we're all on this journey home, and we belong to each other. And I want you to have your eyes open as you take the bread and you receive the cup to look around and remember you belong to the men and women around you and they belong to you and in some, in some crazy way we're free in Christ in ways we never imagined even though we lay a lot down for each other out of love so take the bread and the night in which he was betrayed our Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples he was doing something new. He was rearranging the world. <laughs> he said, this bread is, the, is, my, is my flesh. It's given for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup, is, is, is my blood poured out for you, shed for you. It's the inauguration of a new relationship, a new covenant. In this, in the spilling of my blood is the forgiveness of your sins. 
receive this gift and do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus, we pause here in a moment of silence to confess our sins and then to stand firm in the assurance of your love and your forgiveness. And we do all this in and because of the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? Psalm 34 tells us to uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In the chorus of the song, we're going to repeat, you are good, you are good, oh. Will that serve as a prayer to center our hearts and our uh, souls on the goodness of God this morning? Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run. The fountain I drink from, holy is my soul. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide. The ransom for my life, holy is my soul. Sing it. You are good, good,
Sorry, I got lost in the song, and I was like, ooh, I'm up. So um, a couple things. Can we do one round of applause for our tech guys and girls this morning? I mean, when we're outside, we're basically like setting up a fresh every Sunday, and stuff always goes wrong, and you can see them trouble. I mean, they just do a great job, so just thanks. And if you see them, thank them personally, because we value you. And I will send you, I love this, for this season, from 2 Corinthians. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen? Go in peace. Enjoy the beautiful day.